Good morning. Am I on? Good morning. Here we go. All right. Let me pray. My name is Donovan. If we haven't met, hello. I have the pleasure of preaching Isaiah 49. Wow. So let me ask for God's help. God, thank you for your grace and for your prophecies and for not leaving us in our sin and our weakness and our flesh. Coming to rescue us. Thank you for Jesus. I pray we would be captivated by his, his being, who he is. Help us to see a bit more of that today and to be set free as a result. Amen. All right, real quick, Isaiah in general. So some of you are new here. Uh, the book of Isaiah is several hundred years before the coming of Christ, and it's the story of God uh, disciplining his nation, Israel, carrying them off into exile for their unbelief and their injustice, and then bringing them back into the land. And what we see is that there's a, a need revealed for what I would call a Savior, a Messiah that is out of this world, right? Israel's had a series of leaders, a series of heroes, and a series of kings, all of which have ultimately failed, right? There's always an October surprise with these guys. You know what that is? When the election is coming up and the other camp wants to ruin the other guy, they reveal in October the great secret, right, that's going to supposedly ruin their election. Well, everybody has that. You have them. Everybody has an October surprise, and so do all the Bible heroes. And so we're at this place where Israel's being brought back to the land, and I just want to be like, so what? For what? You were already there. You've already had the godliest line of leaders. Let me review for you some of Israel's heroes, our heroes of the faith that are celebrated, and God has used them, but they all have an October surprise. Adam. <laughs> some of you name your kids after this guy. He introduced sin and transgression to humanity. In him, we all die. Adam, you really can stop there. But let's go. Noah built the ark, right? Believed God. And very soon thereafter had a drunken, naked fest that his son stumbled in upon. Right? Abraham, the father, the faith. Let other men have his wife out of fear. And also tried to take salvation into his own hands by knocking up his servant. This is Abraham. Jacob, who's such a great father of the faith that Israel, his name was changed to Israel, his name becomes the name of God's people. We'll see this in the text. Jacob, Israel. He stole his brother's blessing. Deceived his blind, aging, alien father. Moses. I mean, Moses led the people out of, uh, out of uh, exile, right, or out of slavery into the promised land, although he didn't make it. Why? Because he didn't believe God and trust God. That's one of the most tragic stories. Moses raised up, led the exodus, for goodness sake, and then dies in the wilderness. David. Murder, adultery, Deception. I was thinking this morning, would I hire this guy? I hired Glenn. 
Solomon, right? The wisest man for a time, and then he left God. He multiplying wives. He had up to around 700 wives. Could you imagine? Seven, and 300 concubines. This is Solomon. And listen, this is all of us. I was riding around in the car with my daughter the other day, and she said, what's the dumbest thing you've ever done? And I said, you mean foolish, like bumbling, you know? Or do you mean like unwise, like ruin, ruinous type thing? She goes, yeah, that one. <laughs> now, many of you know some of my story. My, my kids know my story. In that moment, I said this. It was, I, commit, I cheated on my fiancé. So I was engaged prior to my new life. Betrayed her. I'm like David. You're like David. So what's the point of going back to the king or back to the land with just a bunch of us there? What's the point? And so the pressure keeps mounting. Sin is revealed to be ruinous. It will ruin the nation and lead you into exile and death. The, the, the problem is, well, it's supernatural. It's not just a question of education and learning new tricks and getting the right political leader. Like, sin is in the human heart. It has disastrous effects. Who can do something about this? And Isaiah keeps raising the stakes until we see that only God could, probably sol- could possibly solve this problem. Right? What we begin to see is that God is saying, if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. And so we have this character that is being revealed in the book of Isaiah named the suffering servant. And he shows up starkly here in Isaiah 49. We'll see him again in Isaiah 53. He's, he comes through in uh, foreshadowing, right, of Jesus. That's what it is. It's God saying, listen, the problem is so big, none of you can handle this. I'm coming in. I'm sending my son. Jesus, now here's where we have to, we're going to do a little theology here, right? Like Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all God. And we're going to see this in this text, that the Messiah, the suffering servant, talks as though he is God, right? He says, listen to me, coastlands. Like the Father said back in Isaiah 42, he talks as though he's God, and then he talks to God. The Father and the Son have a conversation. We can talk more about this later, but here's the idea. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the manifestation of God. He is God made visible. He is the exact representation of his image. He says, if you see me, you've seen the Father. I'm not the Father. I'm the Son. But I am the exact representation of the Father. So when God says, I'm going to do this myself, he does it by sending his Son, who is his exact representation. That's a little mind bendy. Jesus is God. So we're going to meet Jesus, and we're going to hear about the father's expectations for his son. Right? So we all have expectations for our kids and things we hope they do, and maybe we've spoken to them about that, and maybe we've prayed over them. We're going to hear Jesus' expectations. Before we get there, I want to share with you. There's a man named Earl Woods. Some of you know who that is. That is Tiger Woods' father. Tiger Woods as we all know, had an October surprise. Some of you don't know. We'll get to that in a minute. 
This is Tiger Woods' father laying out his expectations and hopes for his son in a speech he gave. He says this, Please forgive me, but I sometimes get very emotional when I talk about my son. My heart fills up with so much joy when I realize that this young man is going to be a help to so many people. He will transcend the game and bring to the world a humanitarianism which has never been known before. The world will be a better place to live in by virtue of his existence and his presence. I acknowledge only a small part in that, in that I know I was personally selected by God himself to nurture this young man and bring him to the point where he can make his contribution to humanity. This is my treasure. Please accept it and use it wisely. Wow. I mean, that's blasphemy. This is blasphemy. But it's another example of how no matter how great we think someone is, there's an October surprise. Not only, as you may know, did Tiger Woods end up committing adultery on his wife, he confessed to doing that 100, with 120 different people. We are in need. The other thing I see here is that Earl Woods is in touch with the need, though. Like, he's putting his hope in his kid, but that need is there. For what? For a humanitarianism, the likes of which has never been known. Right? Someone that will transcend, not just golf, but the world and all of our problems. Have you met anyone that told you that their life is so, is so much better because of Tiger Woods? <laughs> Adam Landis, maybe? Are you out there? Maybe with that guy. One guy. So let's hear about God's expectations for his son. So again, you're going to hear two voices here, and it goes back and forth. You're going to hear the son... And you can hear the father. I think the first voice is the son. But he's talking like God. If you remember back in uh, Isaiah, sorry, it was Isaiah 41, 1, God calls the nations, right? And he says this, listen to me in silence, O coastlands. In fact, this morning when the scripture was being read, my son goes, hey, didn't we hear this passage already? Well, it's a familiar thing that God says throughout the book of Isaiah. Listen to me, O nations. Listen to me, O coastlands. This is what God says. And now his son, the servant, the Messiah, says the same thing. Stands up and says, listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. All right, what do you have to say? The Lord called me from the womb. He's going to be born. So you have this figure who's talking like God. And if you fast forward to the New Testament, we see Jesus doing this, right? He says things like this, before Abraham was, I am, invoking the name of God. There was a reason he was murdered. And this is one of the key reasons that the religious people he came to who held God in the highest esteem were offended that a mere man would say such a thing. He continues throughout all the New Testament to take all these themes that belong to God and appropriate them. I am the shepherd. I am the groom. I am the life. I am the truth. 
and yet I'm going to be born, right? So that's what Christmas is all about, that we wonder that God came, he came to rescue, and he came as a child. How would you come, right? And it's counterintuitive because people would say, I would believe in God if I saw proof, and they're looking for some kind of sorcerer, I guess. And he comes as a baby. Why? Because he doesn't want to hurt you. He called me from, thy, from the womb. We see this in Luke 2. When the angel speaks to Mary, Do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb, and you will bear a son. And verse 1 also says this, From the body of my mother he named my name. And Mary is told you shall call his name Jesus. This is the voice of Jesus in Isaiah 49. I mean, all of the Bible is about Jesus. He's the true and better Moses, he's the true and better Adam, he's the true and better everything. And, and we, we, we learn how to see Jesus as the center of all the scripture, but sometimes right here it's really clear. This might be the first time we're really explicitly, except outside of maybe Psalm 22, the voice of Christ comes through. He's talking here to you. The angel continues to marry. He will be great and called the son of the most high. The Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. To his kingdom there will be no end. He will bring to earth a humanitarianism the likes of which has never been seen. He will seek the good of humanity. I'm just going verse by verse here. Let me see how much. This passage, you could do a six-month or a year series on this. So skip lunch. His, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. So we've got this even imagery in the New Testament that we see in the book of Revelation. Right? It says this, Jesus coming, says in his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. So this is God's weapon. So send your weapon. There's enemies, there's toil, there's war. We need a weapon. He sends his son, his weapon are his words, full of grace and truth. As Hebrews de describes Jesus, I don't think this is talking about the written words in the Bible. It's talking about the word of God, who's Jesus. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts of intentions of the heart. Jesus' sword is in his mouth. He comes and he brings judgment to those who don't hide in him, and he brings comfort and life and new birth to those who hide in him. Let's continue here, verse 2. He made me a polished arrow, and in his quiver he hid me away. So we've talked before about this idea. Listen to this verse, right? This is, I think this is in the Psalms. Children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. So you've got this idea that children are, are arrows, right, that we launch into the world to bring God's kingdom. And so you've got this quiverful movement, right? Oh, that's great. We want a lot of those. I have nine, ten kids. My quiver's full. Well, you know why you had to have nine or ten? Because they're not that great. God's quiver's full. He's got one. One. Perfect, straight, strong, arrow, 
perfectly aimed at sin and death and Satan. Now, no offense to you for all your kids. They're all lovely. But they're not. They have October surprises. Right? One quiver. And he said to me, so that was the father talking to the son, you are my servant. What is his role? What is he's going to serve the father to accomplish what Israel could and should have done? Sorry, what Israel was called to do. They couldn't do it. What Israel was called to do, which was to be a light for the nations, as we'll see. Right? To love God and love people and be a light to the nations. Israel failed. Of course they failed. Who will do this? The Son of Man. He will serve. How? By giving his life. John, listen to the, oh, I don't remember where I got this. I got a lot of texts I, I copied in here but didn't get the reference. This is Jesus in the New Testament define, referring to himself saying, even the Son of Man, that's him, came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is one of the most astounding things we learn in the scriptures is that we don't serve God. I mean, in some sense, right, I'm called to serve God, I'm called to do this. But at the ultimate sense, he is serving us, right? Is even Paul says, it is by the grace of God that I do anything. God serves you. He's serving you. He serves you at the cross. He serves you today. That's all he's doing. I was listening to a sermon this week, and it was about uh, Jesus in the upper room with his disciples the night before he got crucified. And it's the foot washing scene. And here's Jesus, who they're all like worshiping, right? They've confessed him as God, and here's God incarnate, right? This, this everlasting, splendid king that we see in Scripture has come and taken on flesh, and he's at dinner with them. He gets up and takes his clothes off. This is God. It says he removes his outer garment. So I'm assuming he's still covered to some extent. And then he puts a towel around his waist. This is the clothing of a servant, of a slave. This is what he does. And then he gets down and washes their feet. He washes Judas's feet. And it comments on this, like the strength to do that came from him knowing who his father was, who he is, all that the father had given him and will give to him. He stands there secure in his identity and his being, and that strengthens him to wash the feet of the one that's going to hand him over. This is your God. He is the servant, and then he calls him Israel. Why? Because he's the true and better everything, the true and better temple, the true and better land. He is the true and better Israel, right, that came to do what Israel couldn't do. He's Israel. Side note, this affects how you interpret the Bible. Promises to Israel go to Jesus. Jesus. All the promises in him find their yes and amen. A side note on amillennialism. We can get back to that. <clears throat> he is my ser- I am his servant. You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Right? God will reveal his being to the world, to the universe, in this servant. Through his entire life, ultimately through his death and resurrection. This is Jesus. Speaking in John 17, right? Right before he's going to be crucified. He says this, now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. 
right? So Jesus the Son is with the Father before the world exists, right? That's that Trinity. And then he sends him into the earth, right, to be his servant. And now Jesus says, now glorify me. That glory that we've had, it's time to, let's show the world. And what is it? It's the murder of the Son of God. Why? Because it's mercy poured out for you. God is merciful. I mean, this is the life of Christ here. Isaiah 49, seven verses. Verse four, a little tricky. But I said, this is the son speaking, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. Here's what I believe is happening there. It wasn't a walk in the park, right? Jesus sweat blood. Jesus cried out as he read in Hebrews with loud cries and tears. He was abandoned, left alone. At the cross, he yelled out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I believe this is the war, right? That the son says, ah, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity, right? Temptation to despair, but not ultimately the last half of the verse. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, verse 5. Now there's this, who is he? He says, the Lord says, and then he starts defining who the Lord is. He who formed me from my womb to be his servant. To do what? To bring Jacob back to him. Who's Jacob? The nation of Israel. Right? That's why he sent me. We're going to bring Israel back. And not back to the land. Back to God. Reconciliation. Forgiveness. He's going to die for their sins. He sent me to bring Jacob back to him that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and God has become my strength. And verse 6 says this. So that's a, that's a pretty good job description. Right? You raise up your son. Here's the deal. My people have forsaken me. I'm sending you. You're going to bring them back. You're going to bring them to me. You're going to reconcile sinners from the tribe of Israel to me. I will be one with my people again. What a calling. And then God looks at his son, looks at his being, looks at his glory and goes, that's too light a thing though. That's a small job description for Jesus Christ. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring, me, bring back the preserved of Israel. No, 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 no. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make you a light for the nations. One nation is not enough for my glory. All the nations, every nation to the end of the earth I will bring back that my salvation will reach the end of the earth. Jesus in the book of John says this, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Oh, he came to serve Israel. Oh, he came to bring them back to God. But that's not it. That is too light a thing. It's too light a thing. And so dreaming of glory and dreaming of renown and dreaming of pleasure and mission, he looks up and says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Who is he talking about? All the other nations. And he says this, I must get them. And they will listen to my voice, and then there will be one flock and one shepherd. And we see ultimately at the book, in the book of Revelation that all the nations are gathered worshiping this Messiah, this servant. Claim, right? Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. Why? For you were slain. There was your service. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. 
verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, His Holy One, Israel's Holy One, to me. So again, that's the Father talking to the Son. To, and He describes Himself as deeply despised and abhorred by the nation. Why? Because He showed up and said, I am, and I am the shepherd, and come to me and find life. Come to me and drink. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. And those who were came to him. And it sparked jealousy and anger, and he was despised, and it tells us he was abhorred by the nation. Isaiah 53 really gets into this. You can go and read about that. I'm not going to get into that, but it's about him being rejected, right? John tells us that Jesus came to his own, and his own did not receive him. The majority of Jews in that time did not recognize him. And they rejected him. And so he went to the Gentiles. But we know this is what God says right to the one that's deeply despised. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves. Because the Lord, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, he has chosen you. Every Knee will bow, right? At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. This is Philippians 2. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Again, in Revelation, we hear this regarding Jesus. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. That's a hot castration band. Worshiping Jesus. You know what I'm talking about. But literally... Scallops. Scallops praising Jesus. The heavens declare the glory of God. Like We have no idea what that looks like because the world is in so, such disarray. We're not just going to like a place where we don't get sick. Like The universe remade. All things reconciled. What does it look like for all of life to praise Christ? Right now the earth is subject to futility. But literally every creature, he's not lying Every creature, the work that this servant accomplishes, transcends, brings a humanitarianism, the likes of which has never been seen, such that the proper response is that every atom in the universe praises him. I was talking to someone today who's visiting, been visiting uh, here in Cedar Rapids, and I said, hey, it's been good to have you here. I hope you've been enjoying. He goes, yeah, music's good, preaching's good. And I'm like, it's not that good. It's all right. I love our music. I'm often like, is this really happening at church? Like, what is going on here? And then I'm like, that's not enough. Where's the fish? You know what I mean? That day we see some fish flopping across the stage. I'm like, okay, we're getting somewhere. <laughs> oh, gosh, where was I? All right. Jesus transcends, he transcends the Bible. He's, this is, he's the son of God. And he bursts forth in clarity in the book of Isaiah. But not just the book of Isaiah. I want to read something to you. It's an excerpt that I borrowed from an old preacher named Oral Roberts. When he talks about how you know, Jesus here isn't just bursting forth in the book of Isaiah. He's bursting forth in all of life and he's bursting forth throughout the scriptures. Let's just read a little bit about who this servant is. Or Robert says this, in Genesis, he is the promised seed of the woman. 
In Exodus, he is the Passover lamb, the true priest in the tabernacle. In Leviticus, he is the high priest and the offerings. Where we're going is he is the fulfillment. He is the desire of the nations, right? The joy of every longing heart. Every single thing you ever hoped for, every good thing we ever wrote about finds its fulfillment in Christ. In Deuteronomy, he is the two laws, love God and love your neighbor. And he's the rock and refuge of his people. In Joshua, he is the captain of the Lord of hosts, making war. In Ruth, he is the kinsman redeemer. In Samuel, he is the root and offspring of David. In Ezra and Nehemiah, he is the rebuilder of what? The temple, the real temple. Him as the cornerstone, you as living stones. In Esther, he is the savior of God's people. In Psalms, he is the song. Jesus is song. God is song. God sings. Why do we sing? Because at the root and essence of God's being, there's harmony and beauty and complexity, the likes of which we can't comprehend. It has to go beyond that to our hearts and so we can get all the feels. Jesus is song. Zephaniah tells us that this God will sing over us, and we've yet to experience that in its fullness. And it's going to melt us. I told tell my wife this week, I was telling her again how wonderful she is. Here's the thought. If I was God and I had to make just me or my wife, who would I make? Without a doubt, it'd be my wife. And she goes, no, it'd be you, right? Of course, she's just saying that because that's what you have to say, right? That's how you keep a marriage happy. I said, well, who do the kids come to? Who do they tell about their life and their fears and who sings to them? It's not me. I hear, them about, I hear about them through her. And she said, uh, yeah, but they're getting older and like, you're such a better teacher. Like, they need to be taught. And I'm like, no, they need a hug. And she said, God didn't w- win us with a hug. And I said, yes, he did. <laughs> yes, he did. He didn't reason you into the kingdom. He rested you into the kingdom. He sung you into the kingdom. He hugged you into the kingdom. He is song. He is truth. But we struggle, even this morning, we're, you know, going back and forth with the worship songs about, is that the right thing to say? Should we say, here's the babe without splendor? Isn't that splendid? Why are we saying, here's the babe without splendor? If he doesn't have splendor, why are we worshiping him? And I realize this, gosh, we, we're grasping, we're grasping for the heavens and truth and our words fall short. And God's going to break through all that and just sing to you. And you're going to melt. Jesus is the song. In the Proverbs, he is the wisdom of God. In Song of Solomon, he is the bridegroom who will romance you. See, that's a word, but it draws something that's beyond words, right? The word struggles. Son of God, the bridegroom, he's the groom, you're the bride. He will romance you, pursue you, adorn you, lavish you, treasure you, pleasure you. (laughs) 
In Ezekiel, he's the true shepherd and the prince. In Daniel, he's the man in the furnace. In Hosea, he's the latter rain. Oh, what is that? Oh, we are parched. It is dry. Bring the rain, God. Jesus is that rain. In Jonah, he's our salvation. In Micah, he is the Lord of kings. In Nahum, he is the stronghold in the time of trouble. In Habakkuk, he is our joy and confidence. In Zephaniah, he is our mighty Lord. In Haggai, he is the desire of the nations. In Malachi, he is the son of righteousness. In Matthew, he is God's Messiah. In Mark, he is God's servant. In Luke, he is God's man. In John, he is God's son. In Romans, he is your justification. In Corinthians, he is your sanctification. In Galatians, he is your righteousness. In Ephesians, he is your heavenly standing. In Thessalonians, he's your coming glorification. In Hebrews, he's the high priest. In Revelation, he's the king of kings. In Lord of lords, he is the doom of the adversary. He is the light of revelation. He is the no more death. He is the no more death. He is the no more sorrow crying. That's not just a thing that we will experience. It's, it's him. It's who he is. Because we will be united with him. That will be the source of joy. He is the no more curse. He is the welcome home. We're going home for Christmas. And I'll want to come back. It'll be all right. But Jesus is the that welcome home. Gosh, that you've been longing for, that we have been as thrust, thrown into this world, exiled. We are exiles, right? As the Israelites were exiles, we are the true and better exiles, actually exiled, far from home. And Jesus is the welcome home. He is the light to shine out of darkness. He is the new creation, the last Adam, the seed of Abraham, Abraham's ram, Isaac's well, Jacob's ladder, Judas's scepter. He is Moses's rod, David's slingshot, Elijah's mantle, Elisha's staff. He is Isaiah's fig tree. He is Ezekiel's wheel. He is the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valleys, the bright and morning star. It is too light a thing that he should only go get Israel. This is for the whole world and ultimately the whole universe. So two things. Number one, receive him. Like this can be yours by grace through faith. When you believe in the Son of God, you are grafted in with him and everything that's described there as his is yours. This is insane. Because in him you are made holy. I asked my daughter this week, are you holy? And she said, no. And I said, why? What makes you say that? And she says, because we sin. And listen to this verse that God took me to. Paul in Romans 7, describing, oh, there's a war, oh, there's flesh, oh, there's sin. But Paul says this regarding that. It is no longer I who do it. It's not who I am. The old has died, the new has come. I am a new creation. There's flesh, there's sin, but that is not me. That is not me. I am holy. I have been made holy in Christ. The words of Peter you are a holy nation. Oh, there's a war and there's sin and things that are happening, but it is not you who does it, Paul says, but sin that dwells in you, but that's not who you are. You are a royal, 
holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession, an inheritor of the promises. You rule with Christ. You are to be made partakers of the divine nature, right? Like, we got to go higher. Yes, Christ, this is going to verge on, on the edge of blasphemy. Yes, Christ is the Son of God. Yes, He's the one that is too light a thing. You are seated with Him. You are one with Him. You are His bride. You are made one. You are a partaker in the divine nature. You rule angels. We are participators. So number one, receive that. Number two, share it. Man, with 2021, are you looking forward to 2021? There's some big assumptions going on out there. What if, what if 2021 was better? What if the gospel burst forth from Redeemer? What if we stopped caring about what people think? No, they might not like me. Well, they might not be my friend. Well, Jesus didn't send you out to make friends. He sent you out to make disciples. Right? And God is your friend. I don't need any more friends. I got God, got my wife, there's my friends. <laughs> Set us out to make disciples. Peter puts it this way. He made you a royal nation, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Is the light marvelous? Is it marvelous? Is it marvelous? Is it marvelous? Are you in marvelous light? Then you tell people. I was talking to a man recently who was confessing that, you know, some of us, we're good at preaching and not good at being with people. You know, we just want to tell the truth but not love them. And some of us, he said, I'm better at, like, being around people and caring for them and building relationships, but I struggle to preach. And I get that. Don't let the years waste by. You will regret that. Now is the time. It is urgent. Listen to this. It is said that Satan once called to him the missionaries of hell. He has missionaries. So Satan calls to him the missionaries of hell. And he said he wanted to send one of them to earth to aid women and men in the ruination of their souls. He asked which one would want to go. One creature came forth and said, I will go. And Satan said, if I send you, what will you tell the children of men? He said, I will tell the children of men that there is no heaven. Satan said, they will not believe you. Why? Because we're longing for that. Well, here's how he says it. For there is a bit of heaven in every human heart. And in the end, everyone knows that right and good must have the victory. You may not go. Then another came forward, darker and fouler than the first. And Satan said, if I send you, what will you tell the children of men? He said, I will tell them there is no hell. Satan looked at him and said, they will not believe you. For in every human heart, there's a thing called conscience, an inner voice which testifies to the truth that not only will good be triumphant, but that evil will be defeated. You may not go. Then the last creature came forward, this one from the darkest place of all. 
And Satan said to him, if I send you, what will you say to women and men to aid them in the destruction of their souls? He said, I will tell them there is no hurry. I've got time. There's no hurry. I'll share later. 2022. Next Christmas. And Satan said, go. <laughs> Found the right man. The time is now, so I'm praying for me, for us as a church. You know, there's, there's gospel witnessing. We don't want to, you know, act like nothing's going on. There's many of you, and I talk to you about the conversations you're having, and I just want more. Don't you want, it's just too light a thing that we should only tell a couple people. You've been sent by God. Let me leave you with this verse. This is Paul in the book of Acts. He goes to preach the gospel. The Jews reject him. He says, I'm going to the Gentiles, but I must keep preaching. Why? Because the Lord commanded us, being Paul and his fellow missionaries, saying, I have made you a light to the nations, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Wait a minute. I thought that was Jesus. Participation. Jesus isn't here walking around. Where is he? We are the body of Christ. We are the light to the nations. It is too little a thing that only a couple hundred people should be here. That's it? We bring the fish, right? The actual fish, which is men. So that's my prayer, praying that for me, for you, um, that we would worship, that we would be on mission, right? And so maybe reflect on these things as a new year approaches and what will be different in 2021? Well, hopefully a lot more worship and joy and delight and experience of the marvelous light and praise and witness and proclamation and gathering of people from all nations, including the United States. So let me invite the uh, response team up. We're going to enter a time of response. We're going to worship. We're going to sing. Ooh. <laughs> I love song. Praying for you guys. Like, I used to be really self-conscious during worship. Some of you don't believe that because I'm so expressed, but I used to. Like, and I just, I'm just tired of that. just tired of caring what you think. And so I just pray for you for freedom. Just worship God. Like, worship God. Like, would the Spirit fall upon you, just give you freedom? and enter your heart, and that you would be in the marvelous light, and be empowered out of that to go tell the nations. It's also a time where you can give and support Redeemer. If you like, some of you give online regularly. If you like, you can click on the, there should be a link in the online uh, worship experience in the comments there where you can go and do that. If you believe God is revealing something for the church today, for the body, He's spoken to you in a specific way for the church, um, not just for you, but something for the body. I ask that you would submit that to Glenn in Cedar Rapids and the MC in Cedar Falls. If you're online, you can text that in, you know. So sometimes it's for you, sometimes it's for someone else, sometimes it's for the whole body to build them up. So we would love to help you discern that. And we're going to take communion. Right? This is where God glorified himself. This is the service of Jesus, right? 
This is what he came to do. He came as a baby, declaring safety. That was a foreshadowing of the cross, right? We're gonna, we sing, right? And what child is this, right? This, this child, behold him there, right? And then all of a sudden it changes and it says, nails and spears shall pierce him through. That's the, God's ambition for his child. Nails and spears. And so we come to communion, the place where we remember where his body was broken, and Jesus invites us to remember that. Sitting with the disciples, he says this, He took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. He gave it to them, saying, This is my body. It represents my body, which is given or broken for you. Do this and remember. Remember what I've done. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. It represents the, his blood that is poured out to purchase the new life, right? So on your own or with family and friends as you pray and rejoice and confess, remember. So let's pray. God, thank you for your son and sending him. I pray we would be stirred anew to wonder at his majesty. It's too, it's too much for us. But by your spirit, you can take us there. So pray that you would do that. In Jesus' name, amen.